I'm excited about tonight and going through this with you. And uh, you'll get a uh, chin double feature tonight. So I know you're excited about that, but I'll always give you value for your time here. So you're going to get two sermons for the price of one. We're going to go through the first portion a little bit about some what is the church that you went through in the FOF. And I hope you guys went through that. And for those of you who did, thank you for going through the homework. I think as you go through it, you will be so incredibly encouraged as I am every time I go through that. And then the second portion, we're going to go through um, what Hebrews has to say about the church, what we are and what we're part of. And I want to start really by going to um, 111 AD. And there is a new governor in Bithynia in the north of Turkey Okay, adjacent and the far extremities of Turkey next to Galatia and further afield than all the places where Paul had started and planted churches. Macedonia, Philippi, Ephesus, all of those different areas. Well, this is the outer reach of of Turkey in that area. And um, Pliny, who's the new Roman governor, discovers he has a problem on his hand as he takes over. He's discovered that nobody shows up to the Roman and pagan temples anymore in the area. And those who were merchants who used to sell animals to be sacrificed in the Roman temples are almost out of business. Nobody's buying them anymore and he doesn't know what's going on. And with further investigation, he finds out, and in part because many of these temples are tied to the Roman Empire and probably with taxation as well and commerce, He discovers the reason people aren't going is because the area has been taken over. Everybody's converted to Christianity. I mean, that's how extensive, basically, probably 30, 40 years after Paul has died. After all his labors, all the different churches, all the different craziness, you've got entire regions in the Roman Empire in Asia Minor where vast majority of people have converted at one point in time, now many have fallen away, but at one point in time have converted and have left their pagan past. That's how dramatic it is. And so he doesn't know what to do. So he writes a letter to Trajan, the emperor, and says, what do I do with this? What should I do? And how do I handle this new cult and this new religion called Christianity? And he does further investigation to find out exactly what this is all about. And what he finds out is that the people who profess to be Christians gather together early in the morning before the sun rises in order to sing praises to this man named Jesus, but they sing to him as if he's a God. And then they come together and they make a commitment and a covenant that they will not commit adultery, they will not commit theft, they will not commit murder and go through the different Ten Commandments that they go through. And so it's like, what do I really do with this? Because they're actually helpful to the community, not destructive to the community. And yet, uh, when we get them into the courts and we ask them to pay allegiance to Caesar and we ask them to burn incense and to walk away from the Christian face and worship the emperor, they will not do so. So what do we do? And so Trajan writes him back with a very pragmatic um, approach, which basically says they're not worth pursuing or seeking out. Okay, then you'd have an entire province or a big portion of the province in the jails. Unless an accusation is brought forth, don't, don't alarm yourself and don't waste time and energy. But if they do come in, ask them to curse Christ and to light incense to the emperor and swear allegiance to the Roman emperor. And if they refuse to do so, okay, then, then kill them. All right, that's basically what you need to do at that point in time. And the bigger issue is whose allegiance will they serve? And so that becomes the policy for the next 200 years until around 325. And then when Constantine comes over, he believes that God gives him victory by seeing a cross. And then suddenly everything switches and Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. And we see that in the end, those who were persecuted... God eventually uses as witnesses and they do indeed conquer and overthrow the Roman Empire. But God does it inside out. But for 200 years, the church and the history of the church is one of 
persecution and growth. Okay? Now, it's very different from our experience here in America. And when I grew up, like many of you, I grew up in the church. And by the time I reached my college era, I was like, what is this all about? I can certainly live without the church because I have a hard time reconciling what I read in my Bible and what I'm seeing and what I'm experiencing on an every Sunday basis. And a brother came to me at that time and I was like, dude, do we really need this? Can we not just gather together, read our Bible, follow Christ, and pursue other believers who have vibrant lives? What is it about assembling together in these churches which just seem broken and bruised and just unpleasant to be around? And this brother reminded me, he said, Mark, as broken and as bruised as these churches are, she is still the bride of Christ. And that stopped me in my shoes. And it made me think, how am I thinking about the church? Am I viewing it through my experience and my fleshly expectations? Or do I see it by faith the way Christ sees it and for what it truly is? And as we talked about in our group, it's the same way that we look at relationships, marriages, families. Do we see them through the lens of our experience and our expectation and preferences? Or are we viewing our wives, our children, our family, the brothers in our lives, the sisters in our lives? Are we seeing it the way the Lord sees it? And so tonight, what I want to walk through with you is how does the Lord see the church? And I think as you see it the way he sees it, you will be encouraged, okay? And uh, could I have my first slide, please? Is that doable? And while I'm waiting for that, did, did we get it? Good, okay. You heard me say this a few weeks ago, okay? Quoting John Owen. Beholding the glory of Christ, one of the greatest privileges and advancements of believers, both in this world and to eternity, consists in their beholding the glory of Christ. And I want to put before you, and much of John Owen's work on the glory of Christ is taken from his exposition of the book of Hebrews, which is where we're going to go this evening, is that this is really, from God's perspective, what the church is all about. The church, universal, invisible, but extending into the local church as well. It's really all about beholding the infinite goodness and the infinite greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we miss out on that, then all we're left with is a group of people who gather together every week, just like the Rotary Club, and we might as well go to the Rotary Club until we see that God is doing something huge and amazing in broken lives. And so as we walk through Hebrews, hopefully in the, the New Testament, where we're going to go this evening is to see that Christ's church is a supernatural work of the Trinity that presently displays God's glory in Christ in and through imperfect lives, the imperfect lives of his saints through you and I. Okay, And every time we get a chance to gather, as imperfect as we are, when we belong to the Lord, when His Spirit is present, we get an opportunity to encounter the glory of Christ, what God is doing, day by day, minute by minute, moment by moment, over time, Okay, as a preparation for when we see Christ face to face. And that is what makes church beautiful, that's what makes Christian marriage is beautiful. That's what makes Christian friendships beautiful. That's what makes Christian families beautiful. At the end of the day, it's really, it's not us. It's through these broken vases and broken clay vessels that people get a chance to see the infinite goodness and the infinite greatness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the way he loves and works in broken and poor and pathetic sinners and puts their lives back together again and uses... Sometimes the hardest and most difficult and most broken moments to shine the glory of the good news of his gospel, which is God's work of salvation through the life and death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as we get to the end of Hebrews, you're going to see this is exactly where the author of Hebrews 
goes. Can I have my next slide, please? This is sort of a summary of the FOF, but I want to address a couple of things because when we come to church, we use these terms frequently, and many times we use them very much loaded by our experience and expectations in the church. We talk about church. What is a church? Well, we all know if I ask any of you, you guys are well-trained, you'd say, okay, it's not the church building, it's the people. But let's go a little bit further than that. Those words, the term church, ecclesia, and synagogue, both of those, okay, synonyms, all right, refer to an assembly or a gathering, okay? And so we have to say, okay, this is an assembly or a gathering of what? And an assembly and gathering for who, okay? Are we just a bunch of Asians who gathered together because we had similar backgrounds, we were raised in similar churches, and we look the same, we like to eat the same food, we like to do the same things, we like to sing the same songs, we like to hear the same sermons, and so we gather together on a Sunday. Is that what a church is? Are we all that the church is? Okay? And so we have to ask, okay, what is this? Why are we gathering? And it's worth asking from time to time, why do we get together on Sundays? Why do we get together on a Wednesday evening? Is it just because this is what we do at this church? But if I was at another church, we would do something different. Well, the answer, as we walk through Scripture, and for those people who were dying in the first and second century, the reason they gathered together was not for themselves or to be with people who were like them. In fact, as Jews and Gentiles started to come together in the church, which was a wild and foreign experience, it became very clear what they were coming together for was for the glory of Christ, the presence of his spirit and the presence of his word. This idea of worship. We have this idea of worship is, the guys who are up here, Eric and Danny, that's worship. If I want to worship, I got to apply to the worship team and I've got to work with them. AV, you're not quite the worship. You're close, okay? And anybody who's sitting back here and people who come in and I, I understand, you know, different demographic, different pockets sing louder than others, okay? What is this worship? Okay, well, I want to go to a place with great worship, you know, with the awesome sound system and the big screen and the electric guitar and, you know, the whole night. What is worship? Okay. When we come to Scripture, that term worship, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a series of words that are used. They are tied in the Old Testament to the activities in the temple. But there are two words in particular that sort of focus. Okay? Binding and serving. Binding and serving. And the idea of worship is the idea that you come before your king and you bend your knee and you put your sword before him and you vow allegiance to him, praise, honor, and binding. You are the king. I belong to you. My sword is at your disposal. And the king, in turn, brings you into his service where your wife, your land, your cattle, your men who serve unto you, everything belongs to the king and is devoted to the service of the king. So we live in a time now of the church experience and worship is like a spectator experience where we come to see a two-hour movie and if the movie was only so-so, I walk out and feel I didn't get my money's worth. But that idea of worship in the Old Testament and the New Testament is about drawing near to the king. And drawing near to the king not just to see him or watch him, but to swear allegiance, honor him, praise him, to say, you are my king and you are worthy of the entirety of my life, and to be brought into his service and to be given a task. And so part of worship every Sunday, each one of us should have a task as we draw near in the service of our king. And it can be as simple as singing the praise songs. I want to encourage you all, when you come in, you have an opportunity in prayer, silent praying, 
and also in singing and the reading of the scripture to come and serve your king. Why? Because you're drawing near to the one who has called you into his service. And the idea of a kahal assembly uh, synagogue is that you've been called by the king to assemble together to hear what he has to say to you as you get ready to go into the world and serve him and go into battle. It's a very, very different mindset than what we have in the world. And then there's this idea of fellowship or koinonia, which you're familiar with. It's the idea of a participation or sharing in something with a common purpose. Okay, what do we participate and share in? I don't want to diminish things, okay? But so often our participation can be affinity-oriented towards people who are just like me. We've got, you know... Monday night volleyball, okay? We've got men's early breakfast. We've got women's conference. We've got all of these different things that go on. Fine, that's great. But if all we're doing is sharing and participating in people who have similar preferences or activities, we're missing out on what God desires. The idea is the sharing or participating in what? The infinite goodness and greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's his desire for you. Okay, and that's the wonder and goodness, and that's the joy of being in, in quote-unquote, church from a heavenly perspective. Can I have my next slide, please? So what we're challenged with, because we work in the world and we live in the world and we've grown up in the world, we wrestle with this on a regular basis, a worldly mindset towards church. We all have it. We all struggle with it. Our flesh is there. Okay, listen, it's a reality in all of us. And praise God, Christ has come to set us free. But as you walk through that, you say, okay, do we think of church as a worldly organization, an institution? As Kevin likes to say in the Harvest and Hospitality, like a Costco, right? Or some club or a Rotary Club. Are we in a worldly organization that is built and led by men that is about our will, our preference, our work, our words, and glory? We're only as good as the people who are up here on the praise set, right? Our voluntary participation, it's by our choice and our works, right? It's how good we are, how good our team is, just like a sports team on Sunday. And as we walk through that, you see it is, it is really against everything that Scripture says. Because when you walk through Scripture, and of course, what ends up happening with that is when it no longer services me, I walk away and I go to the next club, right? But when we see it the way God's Word puts it, the church is a heavenly body. It is a living organism, and Christ is its head. And Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it which shows very clearly to his disciples, he is the one who builds the church. He is the one who builds your lives. He is the one who builds your marriages, your families, your relationships, if you belong to him. And he is also the leader, and he also sets the standard, and he does so with his word. And we see that the church is really all about his glory. Okay, It's his will, his work, his word, his glory. And the sweet thing about churches, it's this idea of when he calls us and he makes us his children, we get the opportunity to participate in his vision. We get the opportunity to participate in his will. We get the opportunity to participate in his work. And we get the opportunity to participate in his infinite goodness and his grace. Hey, the, the rub is, is it comes with a cross. That's Matthew 16. And that's where Peter says, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm fine with glory. I'm not great with the cross. But Jesus says, this is the path. Okay? And if you're with me, you're going to be part of my death and my suffering as well as my resurrection. It's a package deal. And we see that really participation in Christ's glory is not by how much you bring to the table. Mark Dever made this point in one of his podcasts that when people come to his church and they're incredibly gifted, he will typically ask these folks to serve in an area where they are not gifted. Why? 
They're an excellent singer. They're an excellent preacher. They're an excellent teacher. Because his desire for them is that their relationships with people will be based on Christ and their love for Christ. That that will be the bond for them. Rather than people say, hey, I want to hang out with you because you're a great guitarist. You're a great singer. Or we have music in common. Okay? Or we have this in common. And those become the things. Our personal giftedness becomes the bond that we share together. Not our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So even the more gifted the person is, the more likely they'll say, hey, me, why don't you take a few years to do A, B, C, D, and E? Maybe parking lot duty or, or some setup team or some place where you're out of your area of your giftedness so that all people can see when they get to know you is Christ in you. And long term, the blessing for that person. We participate by faith, hope, and love in Christ. We participate in the church by faith, hope, and love in Christ. And what moves us and what moves the church is the Holy Spirit, not our agenda, our preferences, right? When I came, people would ask me, what's your vision for the church? What's your vision for the church? And I say then and I say now, I have no vision for this church, but Christ does. And I'm just here to follow his vision for the church. And he's laid it out very clearly. He wants to see each one of you and each one of us grow into his image and grow in serving and loving one another to build one another up for the work of ministry so that everybody is serving and honoring and glorifying Christ, right? And so that each one of us, our lives reflect the gospel. And so we see is the body of Christ, where does that start? It starts with a vital connection with Christ. It's our relationship that has been a gift from the Lord that makes up the church. And because of that, okay, it's not our choice. If you're a part of the church, as we learned in FOF, as you learned in Colossians and Corinthians, The moment you are saved and the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you are united with Christ, but you're also united with his family. You become part of the household of God. You don't get one without the other. There's no lone range Christians. Eventually, you will be brought into the family of Christ and into a local church. And when you're there, it is because you are called And this is the place where the Lord has called you to serve and you're united with Christ and you're united with one another. The union with Christ, it's inseparable. In a similar way, in the marriages in the church. Hey, we go to Matthew 19 and we say, whom God has brought together, like Jesus says, let no man separate. Your good days, your bad days. And it's not like five years into it, you say, okay, I made a mistake. I really didn't know what I was doing. I got married when I was really young. Everybody told me it was a good idea. And now I'm just not so sure. You know, I'm sure if any of your buddies came and said that to you after you stood in their wedding and you heard the covenant, you heard the vow, you would be appalled and you would pull that person aside and hopefully you'd love, care, and shepherd that person. Hear what's going on in their heart. But also call them to repentance and to turn to the Lord because that way of thinking is just contrary to the gospel, right? Amen? I've changed. I'm not in the same place. It didn't work out the way I hoped or planned. And yet, brothers and sisters, we're tempted by that in the church. But, When we look at from God's perspective, the church is the bride of Christ. It's the body of Christ. Our union with Christ and our union with one another is inseparable. And that's why when you get to 1 John, he says they went out from us because they were not of us. And he shows the test of love. That as we grow in our love for Christ, we grow in our love for one another, right? And that it comes with a cross that includes suffering. And maybe there's sometimes in our marriages, our families, and our times together where, yeah, it isn't working out terribly great for me. I don't get to watch the TV show I like. I don't get to read my Bible when I want to. But in the bigger picture, my hope is that my children, my wife, are able to grow in Christ. And if that comes at my expense, then praise the Lord, right? And so we have this view that God brings, which is incredibly beautiful, 
which is the bride of Christ being prepared for her groom to come when we will be together forever. But that process has begun here and now and it's begun here in the local church. Can I have my next slide, please? This is where the author of Hebrews goes. And as we come to the book of Hebrews, just for context, you see up here, you've seen this slide before, the book of Hebrews, or the epistle of Hebrews, is part of that last section of the epistles, of apostolic epistles that were not written, allegedly, by the apostle Paul. We don't have a name, it's anonymous. But, indeed, there are some who do believe that Hebrews was written by the apostle Paul. Nonetheless, there's no name there. But as you walk through, have a look at your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 1. And we'll see the beginning of where this goes. How do we rightly think about the church? Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Okay, there's no author, there's no two. It begins with the glory of Christ, of who he is. This is where Hebrews starts. Can I have my next slide, please? All right, what's the purpose of the epistle to the Hebrews? I believe you see some of it in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. If you have your Bibles, have a look there, and we'll read through it together. Hebrews 4, 14. It says, Therefore, since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tested or tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now you're going to see the same pattern as you read through the book of Hebrews. And I would just encourage you, you could do it. I did it probably yesterday and today, no more than an hour. Read through from beginning to end. And it is just incredibly beautiful. Because the first ten chapters are all about the glory of Christ. But there's this recurrent pattern that he goes through. He says, therefore... Because this is who Jesus is. Let us do this. This is what we're called to do and commanded to do. Because of who he is. Where is he going with this? And we see that this is really the purpose. The purpose of Hebrews is a call for us. In light of who Jesus is. To draw near to him. That's what the church is all about. Because of who Jesus is. We're called to draw near to him. The author's writing, as you read through Hebrews, it seems or it becomes apparent as you get to chapter 10 and to the later chapters that this is a group of Jewish believers before 70 AD, before the temple's destroyed, who came together to worship Christ and were persecuted significantly And then as time went on, that persecution was getting worse and it was about to get far worse for them before it was about to get better. And in light of that persecution that's happening, including what Tim read, people had lost property. What would happen, because you have this edict that goes out in Rome, those who are Jews, because Judaism got a pass, because Rome realized early on, even though they wouldn't swear allegiance to Rome and to Caesar, it really wasn't about supporting the Roman regime, because they did support the Roman regime. They sent taxes, they paid off. 
they said, okay, this is just an aspect of the Jewish religion. We'll give it a pass because they pay taxes. The high priest, Herod, all of those pay us off. We know they're with us. We'll give it a pass. So as a Jew, you didn't get hit. But as a Christian, you did. And what ends up happening is because Rome has said, hey, we're going to bring charges at a certain point in time. People could come into your store. They could come into your house. They could come into your business while you're gone to church or whatever. They could come in. They could steal whatever they wanted. And you weren't going to do anything about it. Because if you went to the police or you went to the authorities, they would say, they're Christians, I'm reporting them. And then suddenly a file is opened up and then suddenly you have to go before the emperor and you have to go and light incense and you have to stamp on the cross and if you don't do that, you'll get killed. And even then, maybe they'll put you in jail for a period of time. So it's best not to say anything if you want to continue worshiping Jesus and take care of your family. So their homes were getting plundered on a regular basis. This is what they were going through. But as time went on, the persecution got even more intense. Many started to wonder whether it's just better if we go back to Judaism. We'll go to the temple, we'll light the sacrifices, remember all our old friends. And Jesus was a good teacher, I don't deny that. Maybe he was even an angel. But the Son of God and God... Let's deal with that in the down low. And maybe let's not be seen. And I've always said this. What would happen if we were to walk out of church and people were to take our driver's uh, license down. They would to take, take down the license plates. They would take down your names. They would take photos as you came out. And they would report you to the authorities. And you'd have to go down to the police station. How many of us would come to church? That would be hard for us, Right? Even when we went through COVID, that was a challenge, which for the church struggled. How many people actually wanted to show up when there was something said that we weren't supposed to gather? Well, they're struggling with these things, and they're very, very, very real struggles. And so the author of Hebrews is writing, what's the remedy for persecution? What's the remedy for discouragement? What's the remedy when your whole future is at stake? Well, it's very interesting where he goes. He spends 10 chapters talking about the glory of Christ. That's the encouragement. That's the remedy. And the remedy he gives to them is, hey, you don't go further away. You've got to draw closer. When you're in the middle of the storm and your boat's getting rocked to and fro, you've got to chain yourself to the mast, right? That's counterintuitive rather than jumping over the side. And so he spends 10 chapters walking through the glory of Christ and his salvation and then as he comes to 10 to 13, he starts talking about participation in the local church. And as you get to chapter 12, he talks about how what you're participating in is the beginning of the heavenly assembly that Christ has put together. That everything that happened beforehand in the Old Testament, what you're experiencing now, is a foreshadow of what actually exists, which is names are enrolled in heaven, in the heavenly ecclesia or body that is ruled by Christ. Is your name there? And so this is the way he's directing. This whole culmination of Hebrews is culminating in part of being part of the assembly or family of Christ. Why? Because that is Christ's plan of salvation. And that's God's purpose. That everything in heaven and earth would be united in Christ. That's what the church is part of. Can I have my next slide please? And so from chapter 1 through 10. He goes through the superior glory of Christ. To lay the foundation. If we want to have brothers and sisters. A right view of Sunday morning a right view of Wednesday evening, a right view of Christian marriage, our tendency and focus a little bit is, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? Do I need to read my Bible more? Do I need to pray more? What do I need to do? What's worthwhile noting in Hebrews is he spends 10 chapters giving them and focusing them on a right understanding of who Jesus is. And I think one of the reasons we, and I'm going to say this of myself, at different times and seasons, had a very low view of churches because I had a very low view of Jesus. And what needed to happen was not a better church experience, but that by faith and maturity, I would begin to appreciate 
who exactly Jesus is, what exactly he's done for me, what he's doing for me now, and what he's promised to do for me in the future. And as that grows, that transforms our experience And it also transforms our relationships with people who are around us, including the people who don't keep up with us, including the people who don't see it the same way as us, including the people who sing out of key, including the people who don't perform as well as us. Because it's no longer about me and my preferences. My world has been changed and my church has been changed. Okay? Not because the people have changed, but because I begin to see who is present and who is at work. And so as we come to chapter 10, the passage that is put before us for this evening, if you have a look, have a look at Hebrews 10 verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, it's referring to Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now the big emphasis when we talk about the church is always 25, not neglecting to meet together. Okay, we got to get together for church. Why do you got to get together? Well, there's this commandment here. But if you go back, you see, He begins with who Jesus is, what he's done. That Jesus, once and for all, has paid the price for our sin. He's forgiven us. He's made us whole. Forgiven us past, present, and future. And he's made us acceptable to the Lord. And he's provided a way for us to have a relationship with God as our Father. He has a perfect sacrifice and a perfect salvation. And based on who he is, then he moves on. And there's three aspects that he talks about. Faith, hope, and love. All of them, faith in Christ, hope in Christ. He talks about our confession, our agreement, our hope. What is our hope? It's the confession of the gospel, agreeing with God about who Jesus is and what he's done. Faith, hope, and love in Christ. God's gift to his people that allows us to participate. It's like God gives you the Costco card and he gives you the money in your pocket and he gives you everything you need to come into his house and sit down as he puts a meal in front of you because you are now a child of God. But we participate, brothers and sisters, not by our skill or our ability or our performance. We do labor, we do work hard, but it's because of everything that Christ is and everything that he's given us, faith, hope, and love. In Christ. If you don't have faith, if you don't have hope, and you don't have love in Christ, then you're pushing against everything that the Lord is trying to do and He's trying to accomplish and He will accomplish. And when it talks about love and good works, the good works, as we talked before, are God's works in and through us, God's works of salvation, the gospel. Now, this is what leads up to gathering together. How much is our gathering built upon who Jesus is, our faith, our hope, and love in him? And he goes on and talks about not neglecting, well, how do, we, how do we participate by faith? How do we participate by hope? How do we love one another and do good works? What are they specifically that we're called? Well, where does he go? He draws a direct connection between these things and meeting together. And that term, meeting together, is a word whose root is synagogue, the assembly, the gathering together, the church, not neglecting, ongoing, regular basis, as is the habit of some, but encouraging, ongoing. And the term there that he uses is parakaleo. You've heard that term, right? Because that's the same term that Jesus uses for the helper, the Holy Spirit. We're to come alongside one another, filled with the Holy Spirit, to encourage one another. How does the Holy Spirit encourage us? 
Yes, he does it through the word. Yes, he does it through our devotional time. But he does it when we gather together and we come alongside one another to encourage one another. He uses each one of you to encourage one another and to build one another up by pointing to the gospel. By pointing to what we have in Christ. But then there's something pretty heavy because he talks about that we're to do it increasingly, gathering together, encouraging one another, loving one another. We're to do it increasingly as the day draws near. With each additional day that comes, the coming of the Lord and his day of judgment is sooner than it was before, which means there should be increasing urgency with every day in drawing near to Christ. And in drawing near to one another and serving one another in Christ. And then he goes on in 1026 and says this. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury that will consume the adversaries. What's he referring to if we go on sinning deliberately? Contextually, if you go back in the passage, not participating by faith, not holding fast the confession, not considering how to stir one another up to love and good works. There are three things, three let us, which are exhortations and commands. Not drawing near in faith, not drawing near to Christ, sin. Not holding the fast, the confession of our hope, sin. Not considering how to stir one another up to love and good works, sin. Not gathering together to do these things, to draw near to Christ and to do these things together because that's where this happens. It's the culmination of our week is coming together. It's a rejection of Christ and walking away and saying, remember worship? I'm not bound to you. You're not worth it. Therefore, I don't gather together because it's not a big deal if I show up sometimes or not other times. I don't consider how to stir these folks here in any different way than I consider my coworkers, the people I play volleyball with. No difference, in, no, not bound in any different way. And it's not a priority for me to be together with them. It's basically saying to Christ, you died for nothing. You're not worth it. I'll be here some of the time. I'll be here maybe when it works out well for me. And he comes and he says, look, when you have that attitude or mentality, and these people were getting beaten, okay? He's saying, look, you're trampling on the cross. You're rejecting the gospel. You're saying what God has said is worthless, my bride, my body, You're saying it's worthless. And by extension, when you say it about God's bride, Christ's bride, you're saying it about Christ himself. And he said, you need to think very, very carefully about that. Because when you do so, you're missing out on the best part because the best is about to come. Okay? Can I have my next slide, please? I'm almost done. This is a picture of the Hong family. And all their grandchildren, okay? Those are, it's Julie's dad and Julie's mom, okay? And you have all these cousins who are hanging out together and they love to hang out together. But in this picture, they're all squeezed real tight. Why are they squeezed real tight? Obviously, we were taking a picture and the frame's only this big, right? But that's a little bit like church, brothers and sisters. Here in this life, there's a frame that's only about this big. This is our life, And the reason they're there is they're squeezing close to their grandparents because their grandparents have almost infinite love for them. And so they're all squeezed in. And I want to make a point here. The tighter they squeeze to their grandparents, the closer they are to one another. And the same is true in church. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit loves you. God gave His Son... And he crushed him on the cross to pay for you to be part of this family, to bring you in, to pay the price so that you could be adopted, so you could be part of this family. And the way it works is the closer we get to Christ, 
the closer we will be to one another. That's just the way it works. The further from Christ we are, the further we will be from one another. It's the principle of love. That's just how it works. That's why in 1 John, the test of true fellowship is really, do you love the brothers? Because when you don't love the brothers and you want to be with unbelievers or other people more than you want to be with the people who the Lord has grafted you with in the local church, it's saying, hey, you're not of them. But that's also a reflection on your relationship with Christ. So what's the remedy, brothers and sisters? Because we all go through periods where we struggle. And coming to church is hard, or things are difficult, or things didn't go the way I'd hoped or expected. It's hard to sit through all of us. Okay? The remedy is the first 10 chapters of Hebrews. It's drawing near to Christ, brothers and sisters. And as you're drawing near to Christ during the week, your Sundays, I guarantee, will be so much sweeter. Because when you come, it's not about you or the other person. It's about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in fact, this is what the Lord does from now through eternity. Can I have my final slide? Almost final slide. We're landing the plane. We'll get it done. As you come to Hebrews 11 through 13, and chapter 13 in particular, he walks through what it means when we gather together as the family of God. How do we stir one another up to love and good deeds? How do we worship the Lord? Okay, and he walks us through. 1228, to be grateful. Let us be grateful. This is an acceptable worship to the Lord. Think about Saturday night before you come in and think about one or two things that you're thankful to the Lord for. And one or two things about your local church that you're thankful for. To be grateful. To offer acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe. 13, 1 through 3, that we're supposed to show brotherly love and hospitality. And hospitality is taking care of people who can't help us back. The people who have been put in prison. The people who are sick. The widows. The isolated. The orphans. Those who are struggling. Who are members of the church. Yes, the people who walk through, we need to give them food, help them out. But we're talking about people in our church who are struggling, lost a job, having a hard time, sickness, illness. This is at the top of the list, brothers and sisters. 13, 4 through 5. Sexual, relational, and financial purity. Preparing our hearts to say, I'm content with what I have. I may not have what I'd hope to have. Okay, but the love of money is not in me, right? He talks, it's interesting, he ties together sexual purity as well as financial purity. When you look at that triangle that I showed, when we gathered the kids together for that photo, okay, inevitably at Christmas time, guys are playing video games. Is there anything wrong with playing video games? There's nothing wrong with it. Except when, no, I don't want to come for the photo and I don't want to sit with my grandparents because we're finishing up a game of NBA 2K or whatever it is. Then we got an issue, right? And we see that what takes us away sometimes is our desire for other things apart from Christ. And so he's saying, listen, the worship of Christ, the assembling of the church, is about having hearts that are devoted and repenting. If there's stuff there that you see is pulling you away, God has a remedy for you. You know, It's spend time with Christ and see how much he loves you and be obedient to him because his obedience to his commands is all about all the obedience in God's word is really about giving you the opportunity to draw close to Christ. That's the whole purpose. And for those things and those desires and those lusts and those things that are pulling you away, those are things that you're saying, okay, it needs to go. The remedy is spending time with Christ. 13, 7 and 17, remember, imitate, obey and submit to your leaders as they imitate Christ. 13, 9, doctrinal diligence and purity. Yes, as you grow in the word, your love for Christ is going to grow. 13, 13 through 15, share in Christ's reproach and offer praise. He says, hey, being persecuted for Christ, you're going to see that this is part of God's framework in which you praise him and you draw closer to Christ and you draw closer to the people of God. Finally, 13, 16 through 18, do good, share, pray, and look to Christ. And then as you come to the very end, can I have my final slide? Have a look with me and we'll close with this. 
Have a look at Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. This is the closing of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Who does the work? It's the Lord. And this is his closing prayer for them. But it's also coming full circle. Right? It's the glory of Christ in and through broken vessels like us that draws us closer to him. And in the end brings us to a place where the Lord gets the praise and glory because we see that all of worship, all of the church is really his work in us. And as the world sees people who are not perfect, but are willing to come together and say, look, forgive me, I blew it. Will you forgive me? Yes, I will, because Christ has forgiven me. Yeah, it wasn't the best today, but you know what? Christ was present, that we're able to come and stir one another up to love and good deeds, forgive one another, show the love of Christ. The world comes and sees there's something different. And those who are sheep will come. And those who are not will persecute, but Christ will be glorified and will be prepared for heaven. And that, brothers and sisters, is what the church is all about. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a church that you've given us. It is your bride. It is your body. And being part of it is a gift and a privilege that we do not deserve. And yet it has been purchased by your blood. And through this, we have the opportunity, Lord, while we're here on earth, in this family, on a regular basis, we have the opportunity to behold your glory and draw near to you, and as we do so, to draw near to one another. And this, here on earth, will be the closest thing to heaven we will ever experience. And for that gift and privilege, we thank you. In your name we pray, amen.